0: Hello and welcome to Will We Make make It it Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And
1: I'm Jen, the magical mapper.
0: This is episode five of season three. Why did the caterpillar cross the road to get to the artillery range? Oh, I bet you want to know what this is going to be about now. I do. It's about the metamorphosis of a prison into a butterfly rearing facility and saving the Taylor's Checker Spot Butterfly. Ooh. Like I was just saying, in this episode, we will learn more about the Taylor's Checker Spot Butterfly and the restoration program with Mary Linders and the experience of rearing Taylor's Checker Spot Butterflies with Liz Louie, a former butterfly technician.
1: Season three, as you may already know, is all about the Sustainability in Prisons Project, otherwise known as SPP. How they bring education, nature, and training into the prisons to reduce recidivism and protect and enhance our environment. This season is seven episodes long. We finally know. Woohoo! And it's as long as we could possibly make it. (laughs) (laughs) This season, we are interviewing a variety of people from SPP and organizations and individuals that have participated in the
0: program. Since we will be talking about the Taylor's Check Spot Butterfly program today, we thought we would start with a couple of fun butterfly facts. Hey, Jen, do you know what a group of butterflies is called? Uh, a flutter? That is one of them, actually. Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) Wow. But their official name is a kaleidoscope. Ooh. They're also referred to as a flutter, a flight, or a swarm. Interesting. And a group of caterpillars is called an army. Whoa. Fascinating. Fascinating. According to the Smithsonian, there are about eighteen thousand five hundred butterfly species worldwide. Wow. Except for in Antarctica. Hm. And of those, only around seven hundred and fifty are found in the US. And I think it's actually like five hundred and some are in the continental states. So Wow. I'm guessing probably Hawaii gives us quite a few more of those species. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe a few more up in Alaska that are endemic to that region. Mm -hmm. Another fun fact is that butterflies in order to fly need to have a body temperature of 85 degrees oh and so if it's not that warm out that's why a lot of times you'll see butterflies sitting with their wings laid out because they're actually like little solar panels that are absorbing the sun so that their bodies can get warm enough so they can fly interesting yeah so fascinating butterflies also survive on a liquid diet they use their proboscis like a little straw To get the nectar. (laughs) That's also when you see them on like um, water puddles or poop or decaying animals, they're using that straw. Obviously, there they're sucking up either water or the the more putrid things, they're getting salt and other minerals that they can't get anywhere else because they only eat nectar. Huh. And they don't even have any kind of a jaw to chew with. They only have their little straw sucker. Fascinating. And then the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that most butterflies only live for a few weeks. Hmm. And the longest lived butterfly still lives for less than a year. I think it was nine or ten months. So Interesting, but don't a lot of them... Migrate? Okay, if you don't know about the monarchs and their migration story, you gotta check this out There's two different kinds, ones that just are here in the summer and they only live two to four weeks And then there's the long migrating ones that travel between Mexico and the U.S. Mm -hmm. But those ones, it's not one generation, it's two or three generations that it takes them to get from Mexico up to the U.S. And then they go back. And those ones live a little bit longer, but it's still only two to four months. Wow, maybe you could put a link in the show notes or something. Maybe. Mm. They're crazy, and it's super sad that they just got put on the endangered species list because it will be really sad if we lose them. It's not all of the monarchs. It is just those ones that do the long-distance migration. Oh. Hey, Jen, what looks like half a butterfly? Mm, A butterfly with his wings closed? Close. Half a butterfly? (laughs) the other half of the butterfly. Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and with those awesome tidbits, let's get right into our interviews today.
0: So in this episode, we welcome back Mary Linder's. She has worked as an Endangered Species Recovery Biologist for the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife since 1994. For the past 18 years, she has worked to protect and recover populations of five at-risk prairie and oak-associated species. As the lead biologist overseeing captive rearing and population reestablishment of the federally endangered Taylor's checkerspot butterfly, Mary has grown the project from a captive rearing test trial to a program with two captive rearing facilities, 14 field sites, and nine conservation partners all told this effort is transforming thousands of acres of degraded grasslands into high quality native prairie benefiting a multitude of other species mary holds a master's degree in wildlife science from the university of washington seattle and a bachelor's degree in anthropology from the university of wisconsin madison so how did you get into butterflies and what led you to this program (laughs)
2: I got my first introduction to butterflies way back in the mid 90s when I was working down in the South Cascades in Washington and I just I loved them kind of instantly but didn't have a chance to really work with them until more than a decade later when I finished graduate school and moved to Olympia and in terms of the SPP program it kind of came to me so we had already been working with the Oregon Zoo and we're looking for a partner to be able to expand the program to be able to produce more butterflies to put out on these different sites that we were restoring and so about the same time that we were thinking about that SPP came to us and said hey what do you think about this opportunity we'd like to present yeah (laughs) yeah so it was neat and that was in 2010 that's great So let's talk more about the checkerspot butterfly. So why is it important? So the Taylor's checkerspot butterfly is a really fundamental part of our prairies in the South Puget lowlands. And a lot of people don't even know we have prairies in Western Washington, which is one of the things that makes them truly amazing. If you think about Western Washington as this sea of conifer forest, (laughs) and one of the things about Taylor's checkerspot is it flies in really high density populations during the peak of the spring bloom and our prairies in oh. May are just wall to wall wildflowers yeah when they're in their native state and so if you can imagine these brightly colored checkered butterflies black Orange and white, flying by the thousands among fields of balsam root, yellow balsam root, and camas, and all kinds of other things. There's nothing like it in the world. Wow. So it's a very important species. The habitat that they exist in, as I just described, is just remarkable, not only to look at, but for the whole host of things that it actually supports. And one of the things is, as we have restored habitat for Taylor's checker spot, which requires a pretty high Quality environment, lots of flowers, very rich, not too many grasses, some open space. Mm -hmm. That habitat is also inhabited by a lot of other species that have benefited from the work that we've done to restore it. That's fabulous. And Taylor's spot requires a higher diversity of flowers than some of the other (laughs) species or the habitat that they use ultimately then captures habitat for other species that maybe need just a few of those species. So it's a bit of an umbrella species almost in that regard, on the invertebrate
0: level. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the challenges of restoring butterfly populations and the habitat?
2: Oh, endless. One of the biggest challenges that we deal with is really is weather and the unpredictable element that that creates. So on the habitat front, that means that when we're restoring things, we may or may not get green up after a prescribed fire. We may or may not get germination after we put seed on the ground. Every site kind of has its own variability in terms of its response to a given restoration technique depending on its management history, but then also to what happened with the weather prior to or after a given action. On the butterfly side of things, this butterfly is really, really plastic in its behavioral response to the environment. And so if we're we're having a warm winter or early spring, it will shift its flight season to match that. Whoa. There's just a whole bunch of different things it will do depending on what conditions are. And every single year that I've been doing this, I learn a couple new things about what it can do under circumstances we haven't seen before. So it's been remarkably challenging to navigate that, both in mm-hmm. captivity, because they do the same things. They respond to all kinds of different ways in captivity as well as in the wild so a lot of moving parts and then over time too there's been a lot of changes and a lot of shifts both in you know the habitat in and how the butterfly responds to it so lots of layers
0: what is the survival rate in captivity versus in the wild
2: yeah so in the natural world butterflies typically have a survival rate of about one to five percent from egg to adult wow so that sounds really low, but really for each female butterfly, you really only need to produce two, Mm -hmm. a male and a female, except that butterflies don't have a really static kind of population structure like that, especially checker spots. Checker spot numbers tend to go really high and they can drop really low. And so some years productivity can be really high, other years it can be (sighs) really bad. And so there's a whole dynamic there that you're playing with. Mm -hmm. So if one to 5% is sort of average in the wild in captivity from egg to adult, we probably average, I'm sort of guessing here a little bit because I didn't look at that detail, but around, we'll say 65%, right? Wow. On a life stage by life stage basis, we try to keep every life stage at 90% or higher survival. Wow. Wow. And we are often in the mid to high 90s even on that. And a great example of that is this butterfly is actually essentially asleep, kind of in hibernation from mid-July until uh, mid to late January. And during that time in captivity, we have a 98 to 99% survival rate. Wow! And in the wild, we can't really tell because we don't even know where they go, but I'm sure it's It's not that.
0: Yeah, You guys have the conditions pretty well dialed in, it sounds yeah. like, if you're able to get that high of a level of survival.
1: Yeah. I was really curious, are these butterflies endemic to Washington or are they found other places?
2: Yeah, so Taylor's checkerspot is a subspecies of Edith's checkerspot. So the Edith's checkerspot range goes from British Columbia to Mexico and inland to Colorado. Mm-hmm. But within that are about 20 different subspecies, right? So it's all broken mm-hmm. up into these little smaller subspecies that are isolated by various barriers to dispersal, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not mixing. So Taylor's checker spot is endemic to this region. There's a couple of populations, um, small populations in southern British Columbia, and mm-hmm. a couple in Oregon, and the rest really are here in western Washington and just a couple of places, some in the South Puget Sound here Mm -hmm. and some up in Clallam County on the north end of the Olympic Peninsula. Wow. And what is the butterfly's listing status and
1: what does that status mean?
2: Yeah, so Taylor's Checkerspot is a federally listed endangered species and it is also state listed as endangered. Mm -hmm. The state listing status holds less weight. We don't have a state endangered species law but the federal endangered species listing status means that you can't harm, harass, yada yada. You can't hurt this butterfly or its habitat. Mm -hmm. It's a federal offense. And so we have a lot that we have to work through in trying to actually even recover this butterfly. Mm -hmm.
0: Are there any unique biological traits that make rearing checkerspot butterflies easy or difficult?
2: There's a lot of difficulty. (laughs) Interestingly enough, Edith's checkerspot is actually a species that Paul Ehrlich and 40 years of graduate students have been studying, so related subspecies. It is notoriously difficult in some respects to rear they never were able to successfully get it through the diapause stage wow of the rearing it's as i mentioned earlier it's very plastic in it's behavioral response to things Mm -hmm. and so when you get the conditions right it's like goldilocks you get lots and lots of them survival's (laughs) high but there's lots of ways to also get it wrong (laughs) and so yeah and and it finds new conditions every year to respond to too. And that's particularly the case with you know the numerous kinds of dramatic weather events that we're seeing that really, you know, at this point at 18 years, we're adding up to climate change. Let's face it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And as things are shifting both in the field and elsewhere, we're having to kind of shift with that. And the butterfly for the most part is doing a good job of that. But we do keep kind of hitting limits as to how much it's able to change and what it can't change. So there's constantly we're constantly trying to tease that apart part. Can you tell us about the Sustainability in
1: Prisons Project, Taylor's Checkerspot Butterfly Captive Rearing Program?
2: Yeah, the goal of the Checkerspot Captive Rearing Program is to produce more butterflies so that we can take those out into the wild and try to start new populations where they've been lost in the past. And so what that means is actually reducing mortality in captivity relative to what we see in the wild, which is extremely high mortality in the wild.
1: Mm.
2: What are some of the benefits or
1: drawbacks of a program like this?
2: One of the benefits of a program like this is that you actually get a very intimate look at the entire life cycle in captivity. You get to see parts of that in the wild, but not all of it. It can be quite a bit more difficult, especially when you're actually trying to observe that population on an artillery impact area, which is where our source population is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's one of the real benefits of it. We have been extremely successful as well at reducing mortality in captivity. And so we've been able to actually produce thousands of butterflies a year as a result of these programs. So we wouldn't be able to do it any other way, do the reintroductions any other way that we do. Mm -hmm. One of the drawbacks of a program actually in a prison like this is that it's a very dynamic relationship. There are, you know, you might face lockdowns, you might face, you know, staffing changes, you might face, you know, any number of things that you wouldn't deal with in dealing with an outside organization, for example, like Mm -hmm. the Oregon Zoo. But there's been so many benefits that we would never go back. (laughs) So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So why take a chance on doing this work
1: in a prison? That's an
2: excellent question because there is a risk involved for sure. We had to actually build a dedicated facility to do this work. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of expense and a lot of headache just making that happen in the first place. (laughs) And what was amazing is that the women in the prison ultimately took this thing on and they made it their own and they made it a source of pride. Mm -hmm. And so while there was a huge risk, Risk up front, there was a lot of benefits and a lot of appeal to bringing science into the prisons. Mm -hmm. But all of that still had to meet with that goal I mentioned that we had to produce butterflies. Right. Everything else was ultimately second to that. So there was a lot of risk involved, but the SPP program at Evergreen has been successful with a lot of other programs, including programs that our agency has worked with them on in the past. And so between that and the fact that we had already established a program at the Oregon Zoo that laid the baseline and that the zoo could also act as a liaison with the program in terms of guiding Mm -hmm. the rearing details and helping troubleshoot with that. There was a good structure in place all the way around that really helped us go ahead and make the leap. Cool. Do you use GIS or GPS for any of the field portion of this program? Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. So in the field portion of it, we actually have these standardized transects that are kind of permanent transects, but because we're, we're actually walking along those transects and we're calling out the distance to each butterfly we see Mm. to a 10 centimeter accuracy. And so in order to do that, those transects have to be extremely straight and consistent from year to year. And Mm -hmm. so we use some pretty high-end GPS equipment in order to put all that in place and do those surveys. And then we use GPS to actually record all of our release locations because we release the caterpillars into these big plots. Mm we use gps and gis in doing habitat assessments and we use it on every level i don't think i can't think of any you know real activity that we don't somehow have gps and gis involved in so
0: Mm -hmm. oh good we're so glad to hear that
2: right
1: (laughs) we were worried
2: some of that has to do with the scale that we're working at because butterflies can fly 20 meters at a hop fun
0: fact 20 meters is equivalent to about four giraffes.
2: <laughs> or we're finding they can go several kilometers or more oh. over their yeah. lifetime, right? Fun fact, a kilometer is just shy of two-thirds of a mile. And these prairies, for example, the artillery impact area is 7,000 acres.
1: Wow.
0: Fun fact, a 1,000 acres is equivalent to about 3,737 jets parked together. Hmm.
2: And yet we are also dealing with these animals. For a caterpillar, a 10 centimeter scale is important to them, right? Mm -hmm. Fun fact, 10 centimeters is equivalent to half of a banana they can detect changes, you know, basically weather conditions at a 10 centimeter scale. So we're working at a whole multitude of scales. And the only way to keep track of all that is with GPS and GIS.
0: Right. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) So apparently I just had another question pop into my mind because that's how we're doing today. But (laughs) how do they get released out into the field? Like, do you have a net full of butterflies or is it like a tube? Are they babies? Like, what does it look like? (laughs) (laughs) Right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so mostly we release the caterpillars, mature caterpillars oh, duh, in the spring in March. And we do that for a couple reasons. One, they're fairly easy to handle and fairly large. They're mobile enough that if we don't put them in exactly the right spot, they can probably crawl around and find a spot they like better, but they're not mm. so mobile that they just fly away entirely and abandon the site, right? Yeah. So that strategy's worked pretty well. We are also releasing the very young caterpillars just before they go to sleep. For the summer and the rest of the winter And they're a lot less mobile at that stage But the habitat's also really rich at that stage It's very full grown And they've been well fed by that point So that they don't have a lot left to go Before they go to sleep Mm -hmm. We do also, and have more in the past than currently We also release adults When we're kind of finished collecting eggs In captivity We'll go ahead and put those females back out So we've had different strategies over the years So sometimes we've aimed to get A certain number of eggs from each female I no and kind of keep that even across each female line, and then we go ahead and put them in the field. More recently, we've kind of shifted to just letting them lay as much as they want in captivity, Mm -hmm. and then rearing all the eggs up and just putting the caterpillars out during that pre-diapause phase that are more than we can handle, than we can overwinter in the lab. Mm -hmm. So there's different places we can kind of carve off like that, and that's worked great as far as captive population management. We've got several strategies to kind of manage numbers, and because of those those weather challenges that i talked about if you put animals out and then you get a huge snowstorm or a hailstorm or something like that oh, you can have yeah. high mortality after that so by being able to release at several stages along the way we can kind of offset some of that weather
0: related mortality right. mm-hmm. that we might experience makes it a lot more flexible probably yeah, exactly
2: we have to be as flexible as they are <laughs> right right <laughs>
0: How has collaborating with SPP, prison staff, and incarcerated technicians impacted you?
2: Oh, man. It... (laughs) It just came to me. It makes me a bleeding heart. (laughs) It has been the most rewarding thing in a way that I just never imagined, you know, to be able to share in conservation efforts with them, to be able to see the impact of this opportunity to nurture something in an environment that is anything but nurturing. Right. And for many people, they have not necessarily had a nurturing environment, perhaps in their past, right? Mm -hmm. And to be able to give them an opportunity to nurture, Something just opens hearts. It opens their hearts. It opens our hearts. You know, everyone, all my external partners as well, just love the program for that very reason. It's the ultimate feel good. How
0: empowering and beautiful, really. Mm -hmm. It's what we all want from our work, right?
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If if you can heal the environment and heal society at the same time, like, where's the loss?
0: Win win.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Nothing to lose. Right? Yeah. What impact has this program had on species recovery?
2: Ah, it's been tremendous. When we started, we were down to just a single population in the South Puget lowlands. And at this point we have established two other populations that have done really well. Mm -hmm. There's a third population that appears to be, it's headed in the right direction. We're hoping we're done releasing on that site. Mm -hmm. Also had a couple of uh, sites that have not taken off, Mm. but we're continuing to work on a whole host of them. There's about 13 or 14 sites ultimately on the list that we've talked about putting the butterfly at. So, and one of the things that's been super cool to see, the numbers went really high in kind of 2018, 2019, they've dropped a bit. know, since then. But at that peak, we were able to see the butterflies expand many kilometers away from these core sites and start to colonize other sites so that instead of isolated populations, we're now looking at networks of populations or subpopulations. And that's the first time we even had a chance to see how the butterfly works, right? Uh What does it do when it's functioning properly, when its populations are functioning properly? And it's kind of opened a whole new light on what recovery even looks like. What can Mm -hmm. it look like? So it's been tremendous. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So, what does the future of this program look like? Are
1: there any major, like, proposed or desired changes?
2: At the moment, the SPP program is actually running on its own, which is not what we designed it to do. Um, We Mm -hmm. designed it ultimately to always be kind of an extension, a satellite of the Oregon Zoo program because Mm -hmm. of the pandemic and the loss of funding at the zoo, they were unable to maintain most of their staff. Oh, no. Oh. And so there was a lot of programs that had to shut down there. Oh. We have not been able to reopen that program, both because of staffing and now also because of funding challenges. And so, oh, no. yes, we hope there's change in that pattern, right. <laughs> that path, you know, going back into the future. There's a lot of sites that we're still trying to work on. The restoration has been really challenging these last few years because I, like, I have this long list of. Weather events over the last couple of years. Gosh, yeah. I'm starting to see how it's like, no, we've seen even these sets of weather events before Mm -hmm. that can add up to a perfect storm for the butterfly and really drive the populations down. Yeah. But over the course of the last two years, we have had either drought or deluge that has impacted almost every single stage of the butterfly now for two years. And those Uh. same events have huge impacts in the field. We're actually starting to see on some of our sites, desertification from ongoing drought and just low water table conditions, that the field isn't what it was. And so we're having to rethink what is the field even, what are the bounds of it? Mm -hmm. Where's the complexity that we need to rely on going forward? So there's a lot of challenges ahead of us, Mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of really good people working on this Mm -hmm. and thinking very creatively about it. So I think if we can get the funding, we need to kind of stay dynamic stay responsive to the work that we're doing, I think we'll be okay.
0: Right. To tie things up, maybe you could tell us a little (laughs) something that will make us smile or laugh a little bit about your work?
2: Oh, there's only an image that comes to my mind. And I should really just send you the picture.
0: (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Now we're curious.
2: (laughs) Because one of the images that comes to mind is kind of absurdity of what we're dealing with. Because we're working in artillery impact area, we have to wear flak jackets, we have to wear helmets. You know, we're trying to oh survey for caterpillars with these helmets on when we're bent over at
0: the waist for hours on end, right? So it's the idea that there could still be live ammunitions while you're walking around yes. out there, potentially? Yes. Yes. No, oh, that's my That's absolutely the risk, Woo! yeah.
2: It's called unexploded ordnance. <laughs> um... <laughs> terrifying yeah so it, it doesn't all explode on initial impact dang you now they've been doing this for over 100 years right and so who knows what's under the soil surface as well right right yeah. part of the concern. but there's great images in my head of all these people out there in their flack which fits in various ways right <laughs> depending on right, the right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and out there with like the butterfly mm. net chasing the butterflies <laughs> and this stuff it's just crazy And uh, other funny thing that comes to mind was um, we have been able to get some of the inmate technicians out on a few of the releases, which was just a huge win for all of us. Mm -hmm. And we were actually filming one of those for an NPR program. And the inmates, they were late, the van got going in the wrong direction or whatever, and they finally showed up on site. The women stepped out, and I just threw this huge hug around them, not ultimately knowing that that was a complete no no. Oh no. <laughs> You're not supposed to hug the inmates. <laughs> but we were all just so excited it was really fun to have them out because it had been years and years that we'd actually been trying to get any of the inmates out so it was a huge success for us to have that happen and then you know to have it happen on camera to boot was just super
0: exciting yeah. <laughs> so. so did they tear you apart quickly then no. were they like oh no that's not allowed that was great because everyone ignored it i only found
2: out after the fact oh, oh cool <laughs> oh, that's great <laughs> You're spot in 80. <laughs> <laughs> Well, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah. One of the benefits of this program is the kind of constant feedback between the captive rearing program and the field portion of this project where we're doing the reintroductions. In either place, we only ever get to see a portion of everything that's going on. Butterflies in captivity are not flying around and feeding in the wild. The caterpillars don't get to choose, you know, which plant or part of the plant they're feeding from. In captivity, they can see what's going On in diapause, diapause being that winter sleep in the field that's completely hidden to us, as is the pupil phase of things. And so, really, it's only by the marriage of these two programs that we can really kind of close the loop on the entire life cycle and understand what's going on all along the way. So, that's been a really neat part of the whole thing. Very cool. And Kelly and SPP have been awesome. They've been really fun to work with, and uh, it's been a a long and rich relationship, and I hope it continues.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing more about the Checker Checkerspot Butterfly Rearing Program.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's been great to be with you.
1: Next up, we have Liz Louie, who was a butterfly technician at the Taylor's Checkerspot Butterfly Rearing Program. Liz is currently the manager of the Fair Start Restaurant Program. According to their website, Fair Start transforms lives, disrupts poverty, and nourishes communities through food, life skills, and job training. We hope to have a future mini where we share more about Liz's experience with the Fair Start program. Stay tuned for more on that. We are very excited to talk to her today about her experience and how it has impacted her. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz. Oh,
3: you're welcome. I'm happy to be a part of this. Awesome.
1: Great. So, What was your involvement with
3: the Sustainability in Prisons project? So I was with the project for three and a half years. I went through four rearing seasons. When I saw sort of the poster advertising for this position, I thought, oh, you know, I'm a really big conservationist. I thought this kind of spoke to me and, you know, let's give it a shot. And I applied. Uh, Yeah, to actually go through a whole application process and be interviewed. And I had some skill sets being an operations manager and manager and what Working with data that seemed to fit with this program. The only thing I didn't have an experience with is working with live animals, so that was really interesting. And, and you know, I was uh, fearful at first because butterflies are such delicate creatures mm-hmm. that I was concerned about having to actually work, you know, and touching and feeding and, and doing all those. But you know, it worked out really well. It was a really, really amazing experience. And to go through three seasons of raising Taylor Checker Spot butterflies, each season we were able to surpassed the number of larvae and butterflies we were able to release. So that, that felt really good. So while you were a technician,
1: what benefits did you receive?
3: At the time I was in the program, SVP was working with Evergreen College to ensure that we receive college credit. For every year that we were there, we received some college Mm -hmm. credit, especially if we wanted to go to Evergreen College. Mm -hmm. That was really impactful. It made it more important and gave most of the people who were in the program in any SPP program. Some of them have not been to college before or have not had that experience. Mm -hmm. So to be able to give that sort of, in some cases, push them to pursue further education in some aspects, it allowed them with some of that credit and just to give them the confidence to be able to pursue other opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I I think it was a really great thing. It was a big effort on SVP's part to get Evergreen to accept the program and to give college credit for it. So that was really amazing.
0: Did you receive training about how to like handle the butterflies and stuff like that also, like specific to that? I'm kind of guessing.
3: Yes. At the time, Carolina uh, was the senior technician there. It was her last year and a half in the program. And so she was responsible for training myself as well as a couple of other technicians. And then when she moved on, I moved into her spot as being the senior lab technician there. So, And we did a lot to improve the process. It was an ongoing learning experience for us. And you're raising a live animal. So mm-hmm. we tried lots of different things, especially during the breeding season, but lots of different things to see what different circumstances in environmental control that we could change that would change the outcome. That sounds really interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So let's get a little Bit more into what rearing butterflies
3: looks like.
0: Maybe could you start by kind of just walking us through their life cycle?
3: Mm-hmm. So once they become a butterfly, that's actually the end of their life cycle. They start. So we take the butterflies in the spring. We breed them. Then they produce a lot of eggs. And then the eggs become larvae, which we during the start of the winter we feed. And then they go through a period of hibernation where they go to sleep for several months. And then in the spring, the larvae develops a pupae and then. Ev- Eventually they become a butterfly and then the cycle starts all over again. So, you know, at the time when their eggs first had, we had like 3,500 larvae at one time that wow. we were raising. We kept them in little deli cups. Oh. <laughs> (laughs) Their food source is a plantain which is essentially a weed that grew all over the facility so we would go and pick plantain that we use to feed the larva and so we would feed them for a few months and then they'd go to sleep and then we just kind of kept monitoring and kept track of them and did things like temperature and humidity, wrote those things down and kept track of that and then later on they still will start to wake up and then we feed the larva and then eventually they will pupate or form a hard shell and then once they form the hard shell then they will, during a period of time after that then they will start to open the shell and become butterflies so so
0: when they're a pupae is that when they're a caterpillar Their larva is kind of the caterpillar okay okay yes
3: Yes, and the pupae is when they form the little hard shell. Okay,
0: so that's when they're starting the transformation to butterfly. Yes. Oh. I should know these things. I know I learned them when I was like a young child, but that was a few years ago. So,
3: <laughs> And when you think about it, when you look at a caterpillar or larvae and then at the butterfly, what transformation happens within that little cocoon to emerge as a butterfly? Because they're two completely different animals, you know? Right. And so it would be fun to just be able to see inside. Side right. And see the actual transformation happening. That would have been cool. But, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have the technology to do that. Right. So it's just really interesting. Yeah. And then the fun part is when they become butterflies, and then that's when you really handle them more because you're, in some cases, hand feeding them. And we had, 10 different what we call families or lines. Mm-hmm. And then we had to keep track of them separately. They were color coded, you know, so we had to make sure that they were all in the like separate tents and that there was no commingling other than the actual breeding part of it. So we would breed one line with another line to produce mixed genetics. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Absolutely. So so after the butterflies lay the eggs, like do they die or do they live a while?
3: Usually they'll live probably just a few more weeks. Okay. And then at that point, once we have read as many as we could, Mm -hmm. We might start out with 50 butterflies, but towards the end, we may end up only with 14 or 15, maybe 20 if we're lucky, because we're breeding in the heat of summer. So a lot of them will die because of heat or once they've laid their eggs, because each butterfly can lay thousands of eggs. And so at the very end, then we will also do a release of the butterflies. Uh. And then in the hopes that maybe those who have not actually bred might in the wild breed and continue to produce eggs in their own natural habitat. So, how do you guys make the babies?
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> in my mind, it's like two
3: little butterflies, and they're doing their butterfly. I don't know. It's yeah, they actually do attach. So, what we do is we will take one female from one line, and to up her odds, we will usually put like seven or eight males in a similar, same tent. We've tried playing Marvin Gaye you know we tried making it a little bit cooler and darker you know so hoping that the ambiance you know will help facilitate and then once once you see that two butterflies have joined Mm -hmm. then we know that that butterfly has been fertilized and then we put her in her own plantain plant you know we'll cover her up and she will live there until she starts to produce eggs and once she's done producing eggs then we'll put her in the kind of retire her in in the mixed cage Mm. and then later on she'll be released so So what does the actual facility look like? The facility is a greenhouse that we have outside of the Mission Creek facility. I believe now they have expanded that greenhouse. So, And then we also have beds of plantain that we plant so that we have a constant food source for them. And so there is usually four, maybe five of us in that greenhouse. And we've sectioned it off for different components of what we do.
0: And so it sounds like there's tents that have probably just females and males separately, but from the same lineage.
3: Mm -hmm. Right. So we keep the lineages together and then you can tell by the body shape if it's a male or a female. So females tend to have a more pointed and than the males and so that's how we determine whether it's a male or a female and then we will pull a female out of one lineage and then males from another lineage that we want to crossbreed and then we will put them in a separate clear netted tent that you can see through and then we'll just let them hang out for a little while until something happens. Nice
0: and then you also have the jelly cups that have the eggs in them or the what was that?
3: Yeah so we'll check them every day we provide them with a sponge that has a combination of sugar and water to feed off of and then we give them a water source and then we will check their plant every day to see if there are any eggs and then we will start to harvest the eggs and we put the eggs in a paper towel that's a little damp in a deli cup and then we'll put as many as we can in a deli cup
0: gotcha and i imagine the eggs are very tiny right oh yes they're like smaller
3: than a point of a pencil (laughs) oh wow oh wow (laughs) yeah Yeah. because you can imagine a butterfly in one day may lay 350 eggs wow. so that's a lot of eggs for a tiny tiny little bite right so they're yellow they're bright yellow oh yeah very cool and then they get darker as they mature and then eventually you'll start to see these eggs become la- uh, larva when
0: or how often are the larva and butterflies released
3: typically they start to wake up in january And then we'll feed them for a little bit. And then usually late February, we will keep a set from each lineage to continue on. Mm. And then the rest are released into the wild. So
1: what were some of your daily tasks with this program? What would a typical day look like?
3: Normally, whether they're larva or butterflies, our first task is to make sure that they are fed. When they're larvae, it's um, plantain. And then when they're butterflies, it's basically, we plant, you know, nectar-bearing plants, Mm -hmm. similar to what a hummingbird or butterflies. And then we use those plants in their tent as their source of food. Mm -hmm. We also include a sugar water soap sponge in case the flowers are not enough to sustain them. They also have another source as well as water. So. Mm -hmm.
1: You got to do a little gardening as well?
3: Yes. Kelly and whoever was ma- the manager at the time would bring us all these beautiful flowers and mm-hmm. then we planted them around the greenhouse. And Nice. It was really nice. We call it our Zen place. Yeah, <laughs> away from all the noise, and yeah. it was really our chance to work with these amazing animals, to work with each other, and just a really calm place. Mm-hmm. You know, which is contrary to what's going on on the other side. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I used to compare the life of the butterfly similar to the women who were at Mission Creek. And for me, having been at Mission Creek at an older age, it was nice to see that, you know, the butterfly is the last stage of their life cycle. So it's the most beautiful, right? And so it gave me encouragement to say that my life is not over yet, that here is my chance to be that butterfly and transform myself. And in some cases, some larvae don't ever become butterfly. They go back to sleep. And so it's similar to the women who have unfortunately been in and out. They haven't yet figured out who they are and what they're going to do. And so they keep repeating the cycle. Mm -hmm. And at some point in time, they will emerge as a butterfly and hopefully escape what's holding them back and keeping them where they're at. Right, yeah. Right. Do you think programs like this are important? Oh, absolutely. Because normally the jobs that you have, you know, at the facility would be the laundry. You work in the kitchen. You might help in the yard doing maintenance and cleanup. And then the only other jobs that they had were going, you're picking up garbage or cleaning up the sides of the freeway which people like because it got them out of the facility. But, you know, it's hard work Mm -hmm. and you're not really learning anything. Right. So a lot of these programs gives you a tool. It gives you a skill. But more than anything, it gives you confidence that you a lot of these women never really had anybody to say, you can be whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You study and you learn, you know, you can pursue anything. And a lot of them lack that confidence and they lack the having someone behind them to support them. And so these programs satisfy all of that. And really, it gives each individual just pride and self-confidence in their ability to do anything that they want to do and gives them opportunities for our jobs outside that hopefully will turn their life around right well
0: mm-hmm. and, and i think that that's it's a really important thing to think about people that have never been told that they're worthy really of being mm-hmm. educated so to see that there is this program that's trying to help and make people feel worthwhile like we all deserve that right so
3: oh absolutely hmm So SPP and all of these programs really open up a whole world to these individuals that would never experience that in any other way. Right. Yeah.
0: What was your favorite part of the program?
3: I guess the whole breeding process is creating life, mm-hmm. it's continuing on. And so, while we struggle a lot with actually getting them to breed sometimes, you know, it was quite like a challenge because of the heat. It was just kind of magical about it. You're just continuing the life cycle, and it was exciting to see it happen.
0: Well, and yeah, they're an endangered species. Yeah. I mean, that's got to feel pretty cool. I would feel pretty cool about that. So
3: <laughs> yeah, and every year when we produce more larvae than target quantity, we we're looking at it, that was exciting. Right, and there was a point in time when the Oregon Zoo they were having a problem at their location, and their larvae and the butterflies were dying, and they could not figure out what was going on. So for a couple of seasons, you know, they weren't really producing like they were supposed to. So we were responsible for continuing on right oh wow the program was successful on our end and you know they they were struggling and they deep cleaned they thought maybe there was a virus or something that was going on and mm-hmm. that was killing off all their larvae so wow it was nice to know that we were able to continue to be successful so yeah yeah
0: yeah awesome yeah. Was there anything that you didn't like about the program? Not really.
3: I really, I've been a manager for a very long time. I've trained a lot of different individuals for most of my jobs. So it felt natural to just go ahead and I created um, SOPs for them. I love SOPs. Yes, (laughs) I'm a big (laughs) SOP person. You know, we really streamlined, you know, we're working with just pencil and paper Mm -hmm. for a lot of in a lot of cases so we're having to document everything we were finally able to have access to a computer and for data entry and so it was really working with the database and simplifying it and and um you know putting in information that we knew was necessary and needed Mm -hmm. and so that was fun and it was you know again teaching teaching other individuals i think i i taught six or seven other lab technicians during the time I was there. And and just sharing your passion for something was really cool. Right. Yeah.
0: Uh, overall, do you feel like these programs are moral and just, or do you feel like there's an aspect that's still exploitative?
3: Well, I think they absolutely do more good. I know at the time it wasn't considered... Like I shared that there was other jobs within the facility and the ones that we went out and pulled weeds and stuff got a dollar an hour and we were only getting 35 cents, I think 35 cents an hour. And so wow. SVP was working to make that more a dollar an hour to sort of substantiate what, what we did and the importance of what we, what we were doing. In addition to wages, is there anything else you would change? There wasn't anything that I could do at the time. Sure. But there are things that I try I'm trying to do, like be a part of the advisory board. It's one thing to have these programs went while you're incarcerated, but what happens after? I don't know. I I, I keep telling Kelly, one day we'll figure it out and hopefully I'll be able to help facilitate that. Cause I think that being able to provide that service and those resources for those who are being released would be huge, yeah. you know, and it, it would be that next step in not going back. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So.
1: What do you want people to know about working with incarcerated individuals?
3: I think, unfortunately, society has a very narrow view of people who are incarcerated. And I guess what I learned during my process is that any one of us could be that person. Yeah. You just didn't get caught. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all done things in our life that could have potentially put us in that position. We made bad judgment. We are um, led by an individual that didn't treat us right, any of those mm-hmm. things. Right. And so, yeah. so don't judge someone just because they've been incarcerated. While I was there, I had a mom who was from Woodenville. She was driving under the influence and she had her two children. She was in an accident. So it was an unfortunate set of circumstances that yeah. got her there. And she was really scared mm-hmm. because like myself, you know, we are fearful of being in that place and what could happen to us. Right. And yeah. And fear, you know, really fear. And then as you get to know people, most of them are just like you and I. Mm-hmm. And they could be anybody, you know, there's a percentage of those hardcore, but in general, a lot of them are just people who made mistakes mm-hmm. and need to be given opportunities to move past that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, how did this opportunity to participate in this program impact you?
3: You know, when I was there, I said, okay. I need to do something so that when I get out, I have something to show that I improved my life. Mm-hmm. I did something worthwhile and constructive. I learned, I went to school, I got my associates in web development. I did this program and I did it with a lot of forward thinking, knowing that at the end, I needed to be able to say, okay, yes, I did this. And yes, I was here, but look what I was able to accomplish while I did. it. I didn't allow the incarcerated to stop me from moving forward with my life, to improving my life. And then I was able to share that with other people. I got a lot more out of it than I thought I would. So it was, it was great. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit
0: about what you're doing now. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Fair Start program?
3: Oh, absolutely. So first, our, our mission is to help those who have barriers to employment by providing them a skill. So we have an adult culinary program, a youth culinary program, and a youth barista program. But it's not just a training class. We do what we call wraparound services. For some of these individuals, we help them with housing. If they need clothing, if they need hygiene, we help provide that for them. We also have basically a life skills class because there are a lot of these individuals who didn't know how to open. In a bank account, who didn't know how to write a check, who couldn't even iron a shirt or do laundry. So, yeah. And then after you've gone through the culinary program, we also provide you support by helping you do your resume. We have a database of over 3,000 connections with different restaurants throughout the industry so we have a job base Mm -hmm. you have assigned to you case manager so to speak basically they're there to guide you through your journey and then they are also with you for a whole year after you graduated to give you additional support because everybody needs that support system Mm -hmm. absolutely
1: is there anything else that you'd like to add
3: No, I I just really, I'm glad that I found SPP. I think Mm -hmm. that I'm excited to hear that they're growing and that they're offering more and more programs, Mm -hmm. you know, because it does such a good thing for the individuals who participate. Most people who participate have had really good experiences and, and have learned a lot. Just in the few interviews I've done over the last few years and in hearing what My other um, cohorts have said, you know, we all all feel the same way.
0: The people we've talked to, everybody seems to have a pretty glowing response about the program. Mm
3: -hmm. And Kelly, Kelly is great. Everyone that's a part of the SPP team.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a lot about how to make Mm -hmm. baby butterflies, which was really (laughs) what I was most curious about, but also (laughs) about how the Sustainability in Prisons project has been transformational, like a butterfly. Oh, absolutely. For so many people that have been involved in it, which is awesome.
3: Thank you. I'm glad I was able to share my time.
0: So there you have it. The end of
1: episode five of season three. We hope you learned more about Taylor's Checkerspot butterflies, what a conservation program in a prison setting can look like, and how this work not only benefits species recovery, but also human recovery, and can play a role in community
0: building. Hey Jen, Hmm. what happens when you throw a piece of butter out the window? You get sad because then you can't eat the butter? You make butterfly. Hmm. (laughs) Rearing and restoring populations of tailored checkerspot butterflies is difficult, and adding it into a prison setting doesn't make it easier. But the cumulative effort to do so has resulted in benefits to both the butterflies and the humans. Like last episode, this is another major conservation program that is facilitated by SPP. And while we don't expect that all of our listeners or SPP to have the time or resources to develop such big programs, there might be someone out there that has just the perfect program idea to pitch to SPP. Next episode, we will learn more about opportunities to participate with SPP without developing a whole program. We also hope that you learn more about the Taylor Checker Spot Butterfly conservation and restoration efforts and the importance of the South Salish Lowland Prairies protection in their recovery.
1: Please join us for our next episode, which will be all about SPP educational programs, and that episode will be released on August 16th. Now, while all of SPP's programs are educational, next episode will be focusing more on the programs that are educational for education's sake. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio,
0: Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.
3: Will we make make it out alive? alive?
0: (laughs) This is Amy the Poop Detective, transforming into a beautiful butterfly.
1: Oh, and Jen the Magical Mapper, flying away. Oh. (laughs) Away from this. (laughs)